You're listening to the Regulatory Roundtable, a funds regulatory and compliance podcast brought to you by the global law firm Simpson Thatcher and ACA Group, a leading governance, risk, and compliance advisor. The Regulatory Roundtable offers insight from leading regulatory and enforcement lawyers and compliance specialists. We look forward to having you join us at the table. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 2 of the Regulatory Roundtable podcast, hosted by Simpson Thatcher and ACA. I'm Megan Kelly, litigation partner with Simpson, and I will be moderating our discussion today about some timely developments affecting the private funds industry. I'm joined by my litigation partner, Michael Osnato, who previously served at the SEC, including in senior positions in the Enforcement Division, and by my investment funds partner, David Blass, who previously served as general counsel of the Investment Company Institute, and before that, held senior roles at the SEC, including in the Division of Investment Management. The three of us are part of Simpson's Funds Regulatory and Investigations Practice, which is dedicated to all things affecting the funds industry, from exams to enforcement to regulation and policy, all categories we will touch on today. Also pleased to be joined by Robert Ingwer, who is Principal Consultant with ACA Group's Investment Advisor Division and has vast experience in compliance roles in the asset management industry. So let me preview the main topics for our discussion today. While enforcement activity against private fund advisors has been fairly limited lately, we actually have a lot to talk about. As our listeners know, the SEC has been very active recently in trying to advance an agenda to more prescriptively regulate the private funds industry. So first, likely on everyone's minds, we will discuss SEC's proposed rules targeting private equity and other private funds. The rules were proposed on February 9th and have created quite a buzz in the industry in the meantime. Second, sticking with proposals, we will talk about the SEC's proposed amendments to Form PF, which were proposed on January 26th. Third, we will touch on the Division of Examination's recent risk alert from January 27th. So before diving into the topics individually, I want to step back and get your macro reactions to this recent activity, which in large part was hinted at in Chair Gensler's speech to ILPA that we actually talked about on our last episode. So Mike, macro reactions, why don't you take us away? Yeah, thank you, Megan. It's a good question. It's a big topic. And I think, you know, if you put all the things that you just described together, it kind of feels to me like we're watching in real time the SEC sort of dismantle an 80-year-old disclosure regime to something that is much more prescriptive and rules-based. And that's just a fundamental change that has happened really quickly. And if you look at the rulemaking, the proposal, the language, It paints such, I think, a bleak picture of the private funds industry. It's like a time capsule, right? Citing the cases from almost a decade ago to justify this huge change. And I feel like probably purposely, the SEC has really overlooked the sea change in compliance and behavior and all of the good behavior in the private funds industry in the past couple of years. And you'd think that a rulemaking proposal of of this magnitude would rest on recent bad actions but it doesn't. And I I just have to ask why. And so I want to look at at you, David, and just get your perspective. I mean, look, the cynic would say we're seeing what used to be an apolitical agency bow to political wins. I mean, what's your sense of what's driving some of this macro change? I agree with your assessment, Mike. And I, I sense that politics are behind much of what the SEC is doing in the private fund 
space. You're right to point to uh, enhanced compliance practices, a lot of lessons learned from the period right after Dodd-Frank was enacted when private fund managers first really, especially in the private equity sphere, became registered. You look at the rhetoric around private equity on Capitol Hill, look no further than the Stop Wall Street Looting Act that was put forth uh, a number of years ago and is still talked about. And it sure looks like the SEC is reacting to political wins facing the, the private fund industry. So let's dive into the proposed rules from February 9th. And the topics covered are fairly wide-ranging. There's proposed specific disclosure obligations. There's proposed outright prohibitions on certain activities, all generating various degrees of reactions. So I want to start with the proposed disclosure obligations, which is pretty on brand for Gensler's transparency messaging of late. Um, David, can you just summarize these proposals for us? Yeah, there there are a number of uh, transparency disclosure proposals contained within the rule set. One of the main things that the SEC is doing is requiring quarterly statements be sent to private fund investors that contain a number of items that uh, the SEC is mandating and and very specific items. So one of those is a fund table that, if this rule is adopted, require disclosure on a quarterly basis of compensation, fees, expenses, other amounts paid by the fund to the advisor, and to categorize those amounts and then provide dollar amounts uh, for each category. That would include uh, rebates and offsets uh, for that quarterly period. Similarly, there's a portfolio investment table. This is uh, for compensation paid not by the fund, but by a covered portfolio company to the advisor and the advisor's affiliates. There's a, a proposed requirement to describe the manner in which fees and expenses are calculated and then have cross-references back to the limited partnership agreement where the methodology is described. and standardized performance disclosure that begins to look a lot like the standardized disclosure of performance required for retail funds. For private equity funds, it would focus on basically a gross and net performance for the, for the fund over, over a quarterly period. Much of this is already disclosed. The idea that you have quarterly disclosure to uh, limited partners is not novel. Many, many fund managers present this information, but as you can tell from the readout, some of the very specific items, including categorization and specific dollar amounts per category, uh, would be new and, and probably burdensome to prepare. So, so what's the point of this? What's the point of all these additional enhancements? I think the point is simple. I mean, I think the SEC is basically saying the fiduciary principle is not enough. And it doesn't matter if you're the most sophisticated LP in the world. It's our job to stand on your shoulder and protect you. And that is the essence of really fundamental change. And I, and I actually want to talk for a sec about what that looks like in the real world. And Rob, your perspective here is so valuable. Let's just assume some of these disclosure obligations make it through the comment process. What's the impact uh, on your client base? In reading through the rules, they mention the term detailed over and over again. I think clients are going to have to really re-examine and ensure that their disclosure language is detailed and specific enough at both the fund and the portfolio company level, as David said. For example, specifically detailing certain fees like monitoring transaction fees at the portfolio company level and detailing investment ownership stakes is likely going to add a layer of complexity to the reporting requirements and disclosure documents. So I think as it relates to the the specificity of some of this disclosure, it's going to add 
to some of that complexity, as, as David mentioned and walked through. So I think we're going to see some real-world impact if these proposed rules go through and are finalized as uh, initially put to paper. That sounds right. And, and of course, the proposed rules cover much more than disclosure. And Chair Gensler said transparency is not enough in his view. So notwithstanding everything we just talked about, the rules cover a lot more, which would be a significant change compared to the current regulation of private fund activities, as, as Mike said, is, is really a disclosure regime. So Mike, in any color on that? Well, I mean, and I want to get David's perspective here, but to me, when you read the release and you read about rule, like a specific rule, the SEC feels the need to promulgate to ban accelerated monitoring fees. Think about that. I mean, that practice is over to the extent it was ever pervasive. So it it feels like the SEC is just dredging up old problems that may never have been a problem to justify new regulations. I mean, that's my perspective, but David, please give me yours. No, I think that's right. And, you know, going back to the discussion on the political wins behind this proposal, you know, it's no no surprise that much of the proposal draws from some proposals from the ILPA, a trade association that represents limited partners. And I think it populates much of this proposal. So I, I think that that's where it's really coming from. The SEC taking in a contractually negotiated relationship, taking sides with one of the contracting partners. You know, and David, Mike, you know, I kind of agree with both of you, you know, the enforcement action back in 2015, I think really scared the industry straight as it relates specifically to the concept of this accelerating monitoring fees. Personally, and and, uh, from ACA's perspective, we really don't see that practice anymore. So I agree with you. You know, I'm not sure why the SEC feels the need to explicitly prohibit this activity when it's been pretty much eradicated via enforcement. Let's turn to another outright prohibited activity in the proposal. One that's getting a lot of attention is prohibition on seeking indemnification for negligent acts. David, can you talk about why that would be such a significant departure from current practice? Well, one major issue with what the SEC's proposed is they literally are uh, stepping in on a contractual negotiation between incredibly sophisticated parties the limited partners who invest in private funds themselves often are, are represented by very sophisticated counsel. And the SEC is stepping in to say that the, the parties can't agree to indemnify a fund manager on a negligence uh, uh, basis, which is a very common provision for decades. It has been very common provision to include. And I go back, I believe that this came from the ILPA letters in, in years past, and I, I suspect that that's the origin of this, uh, of this proposal from the SEC, but it's a, a dramatic departure from the SEC in terms of its willingness to put it the thumb of the government on the scales to favor one set of very sophisticated institutional investors uh, over another uh, sophisticated party. There's a corollary that calls into question what the SEC is doing, which is in the Investment Company Act of 1940, so the, the companion statute that was adopted when the Investment Advisors Act uh, was enacted. Under the Investment Company Act, there's a congressional statement of public interest that says for retail funds, retail fund shareholders shouldn't indemnify a fund manager for gross negligence. That's the congressional statement of public policy for retail. But here you have the SEC proposing a far stricter standard for vastly more sophisticated investors. And it's just a little confusing to understand why 
why the SEC would wish to do that, even though the origin, as I said before, clearly is uh, from the Institutional Limited Partner Association's letters to the SEC in the past. What's the practical effect? You have these contractually negotiated terms and in, in operative contracts. So what happens if these rules go live? Well, we have a long way to go before they go live. This is a proposal. And uh, while this has got a lot of attention, proposals are not effective. Certainly, uh, once the uh, uh, rule goes into effect going forward, that would be the, the letter of the law. So agreements going forward would, would have to abide by that standard. One curious thing about the, this proposal is it doesn't provide for any grandfathering. And I think this is really your question, Megan. What happens to uh, agreements that were negotiated years ago that are still operative if this rule were to go into effect? It's unclear. The SEC simply did not address that situation. I would think that any agreement entered into before the rule becomes effective and the compliance with the rule is required, that such an agreement would not be subject to this rule but the SEC didn't address that circumstance. Let's talk about the proposed prohibition on charging fees or expenses on a non-pro rata basis, even presumably in cases of clear pre-commitment disclosure. I think this rule purports to cover non-pro rata allocation in the context of separately managed accounts and co-invests, which would complicate things. David, do you have any thoughts on that uh, or the effects of that? Well, I, I think if this rule were to become effective, as proposed, you know, you're going to have current fund sponsors and, and investors because these provisions kind of affect investors as well, really rethinking the structures of the investments that they have. You know, is the fund structure the only way to access private strategies? No, the, the, it, it effectively will require rethinking of what product offerings uh, a, fund, a current fund sponsor uh, would make available. And which structure investors would elect, given the cost of, of a lot of the aspects of this proposal. Right. There's another proposed rule about preferential treatment. And among other things, that proposal would prohibit private fund advisors from providing preferential terms regarding redemptions, at least I think where they have a material negative effect on other investors without, I think, much definition around that. But I'll open this one to the, to the group. What's the purpose of this proposal? So this proposal and a companion proposal on side letters requiring uh, terms of side letters to be shared amongst all limited partners uh, have the potential to be very impactful. The redemption really is about open-end funds, giving investors at an open-end fund, like a hedge fund, the ability to have uh, redemptions rights that are preferable to others. And I think the SEC's motivation behind that part of the proposal was to protect others who might want to redeem or at least uh, not have to bear the cost of a significant redemption with a pre-negotiated uh, preference provided to one of the limited partners. The side letters, I think the SEC's uh, motivation is to allow side letters for practices to be made transparent to other uh, limited partners in a fund. And, and that's exactly what the proposal would require. Side letters would have to be shared with other limited partners. The problem there is, again, the SEC is getting into a contractual negotiation, and many limited partners want side letter provisions. They have legitimate needs, for example, to be excused from certain type of investments, but may not prefer to have their, their individually negotiated uh, side letters shared with all limited partners. And the net effect of that kind of a proposal will likely be 
to freeze up the practice of entering into side letters if they're going to be shared with all limited partners. Uh, so it's a, a pretty impactful portion of the proposal if, uh, if the SEC were to adopt it, at least as, as it applies to private equity funds. Right. And could it impact in a negative way advisors' ability to, to fundraise and, and to get investors who, who typically may want to enter into these side letters for, for one reason or the other? Yeah, it was a real question. Like the SEC's economic analysis, I don't think it really addresses some of these collateral consequences of changes in market behavior, making it more difficult to fundraise, to your point, Megan, leaving some uh, limited partners to elect instead of a fund structure, a separate account structure that, that wouldn't be subject to these same rules. Megan, if I could make one other point along those same lines. So these restrictions we've been talking about apply equally to registered investment advisors and many investment advisors that operate under exemptions from registration, namely venture capital fund advisors and non-U.S.-based investment advisors who rely on, on an exemption when they manage uh, private funds. These are called exempt reporting advisors. And I think that that may catch those advisors by surprise. And I, I do wonder about some of the collateral consequences of the rule if it's adopted especially as you think about uh, non-U.S. advisors and their willingness to bring in U.S. investors and the application of all of these rules. That's a very good point. I wonder if we'll see some of that come out in the comment period. I can't predict the future, but I, I could predict that that will happen. David, Michael, I'm, I'm curious. You know, I, There is a theory out there that some of this rulemaking is specifically around sort of the providing pre preferential terms regarding redemptions around the fact that the SEC is sort of anticipating the cycle of the market changing pretty drastically, right? I mean, we've had a market that is, you know, in all aspects and all assets really for about a decade, right, going pretty much straight up. And, you know, I think we all understand that the trees don't necessarily grow the sky. And, you know, there is this concept that obviously in, in a hedge fund, right, arena where performance goes in the opposite direction that it has been over the last couple of years, right? Investors are going to start wanting their redemptions. And, you know, there's always that rush to the to the gate. And so I'm just, you know, I don't know if you, you've heard anything along the lines from clients and things of that nature. And if ultimately, right, if a rule like this goes into place, right, how, again, that's going to just affect, you know, the hedge fund industry's ability to, you know, to operate. Well, there's probably some uh, truth to that, Robert. And the hedge fund industry has survived some some very significant redemption eras. I mean, you look at what happened in the 2007 to 2009 timeframe, certainly there were there were significant losses and hedge funds that ultimately uh, terminated, but there, there's a lot of experience to draw from and it is quite possible that part of the SEC's motivation were lessons learned from, from those years and maybe years before. That's one aspect of regulation as it tends to address problems of the past, which is one of Michael's and Nato's very good points earlier. The question is whether like the hedge fund industry is really caught up with uh, a lot of the liquidity practices or needs during stress environment. But you look at the uh, SEC's companion proposal for Forum PF, where the SEC was looking to address reporting in a very rapid fire manner, significant uh, uh, liquidations uh, or redemptions out of a fund. And you put the two together, and it seems like they definitely have that in mind. And before turning to those proposed amendments to Form PF, just, just another 
component of the proposed rules we've been talking about is one of the most prescriptive, and that's the one involving advisor-led secondaries. I just want to get this group's opinion on that for a moment. And with that one, advisors will be required to obtain a fairness opinion in connection with each advisor-led secondary transaction. But Rob, maybe start with you. Is it is this something that would be a significant change to practice? Are advisors already doing this? Or what's what's your thoughts on that? I think that some advisors certainly are. Those that have, um, I think, mature processes and practices in place. I think this is part of their sort of ongoing portfolio management practices. But I do think that's not going on across the industry at every level. So certainly some of your smaller advisors are, are not reaching out, get fairness opinions on, on these types of transactions all the time. So I think having a, a prescriptive rule that defines that and requires that is, again, going to add a burden to sort of their overall processes and practices, right? I mean, we're going to have to have updated policies and procedures to reflect this activity at a practical level, right? What's that add to costs, right? Going out to, um, you know, valuation, third-party valuation services and getting those opinions for every transaction. It's going to add costs and time uh, and energy as well as, right, uh, on the back end, right, books and records requirements. So again, I, I think, you know, certainly it's going to add a layer to um, a certain uh, amount of clients and advisors in the industry that maybe did this in certain circumstances, but not all the circumstances. Right. And, and what's the purported justification for this one? You know, we haven't seen enforcement actions on this. Uh, what's going on behind the scenes for this one, uh, do you guys think? I think from my perspective, right, is probably just making sure that there's a independent third-party eyes on these transactions. Make it, if I could jump in on a, a slightly different point on the advisor-led secondaries, there's a common understanding in the marketplace for what an advisor-led secondary is, but the SEC's description of advisor-led secondaries, like it's a little ambiguous to me. I, I think as uh, folk uh, are reading this proposal and thinking about comments, probably should spend a little bit of time helping the SEC crystallize what is an advisor-led secondary. So they de define it as uh, a secondary that an investment advisor to a fund kind of organizes, helps uh, uh, lead, but it also includes uh, transfers into a continuation fund and includes some verbiage that I don't think is commonly understood as an ad advisor-led uh, secondary. Similarly, uh, there's a portion of the proposal that would prohibit a fund from paying for some compliance costs that would be attributed to the investment advisor. Well, it's common for funds to pay for AML uh, costs, for example, uh, OFAC uh, sanction reviews. As people think about what to comment on in this letter, I would not lose sight of the need for some crystallization of some of these concepts uh, so that it's it's clear exactly what is and what isn't prohibited in, in the case of those compliance costs. Those are really excellent points. And it also underscores the point you made before that these are just proposed rules. And we don't know if they'll be passed, if they get passed, in what form, with any further detail. So with that said, I mean, is there anything for sponsors to be doing now when these rules are just proposed at this time? Well, I think commenting on the proposal is what sponsors should be doing now. There's nothing in the set of proposals that has any, that requires any change in practice and there's no change in law. So I think reviewing it, uh, helping the SEC, if the SEC is going to adopt this rule, helping them make it clear and avoid some of the unnecessary burdens that are very clearly present in the rule and pointing out things like the collateral consequences that we talked about earlier, the effect 
on the marketplace, on investors from an economic analysis perspective. One interesting piece of this proposal that I'm thinking about is the SEC's assertion of authority for the rule proposal, citing a very novel uh, theory of having a rule adopted under Section 211 of the Advisors Act and provisions of Section 211, which were intended to address broker-dealer and investment advisor uh, codes of conduct. And it's something that I've, I and many others in the bar are kind of thinking about and questioning whether, whether this really stands for the proposition of authority for uh, addressing private fund advisor uh, changes that are, that are very impactful, but not really called out specifically in Section 211. I would second what David said. I mean, don't panic, first and foremost, right? But but take notice, right? Meaning, start to understand how these proposed rules may may impact your practices, start to identify potential pain points, understanding that these rules probably will change based on the comment period. They're not going to probably be finalized as is, but be as proactive as you can at this point and start moving in the direction of these proposed rules without making wholesale changes, right? Again, Whatever those final rules are, this seems to be, I think we're all in agreement, the direction of the SEC in some shape or form, right? They're trying to be more prescriptive. The Chair Gensler, right, is, is, is certainly wants to govern um, the industry more from a, from a rules-making perspective and maybe less from sort of the enforcement or, or uh, guidance perspective, which is historically how the SEC has operated. So my guidance to clients always better be prepared and be proactive and be thinking ahead than to be caught, you know, flat-footed. Good. Well, I think we'll all be staying tuned on that, that's for sure. So let, let's turn to the next topic, which are the proposed amendments to Form PF. David, I know you've been really studying and thinking about that a lot. Maybe you could just level set and give us an overview uh, of the key provisions there. Sure, I'll, I'll do it at a high level. First of all, as our listeners know, Form PF is a form filed through the SEC uh, for private fund reporting, it's confidential, it's filed, it's intended uh, use is with the Financial Stability Oversight uh, Council for systemic risk uh, monitoring purposes. The proposal has some things you would expect, uh, some things that are, that are very controversial. Uh, as it relates to private equity funds, the SEC proposes to require private equity funds to re- begin reporting when their funds have certain events but to report on a one business day basis, so the day after the event occurs, that's a tough standard. The, the timing to file Form PF uh, one business day after events occur is, is difficult, very burdensome, and may not be realistic in all, all circumstances. Putting that aside, the items that the SEC proposes to have filed are very curious. There were three of them, uh, execution of an advisor-led secondary transaction. We just talked about that under the rule proposal. That's one. Second is implementation of a general partner or limited partner clawback. That also was addressed in part by the, uh, the private fund rulemaking. And third, removal of a fund's general partner, termination of a fund's investment period, or termination of a fund. I have a hard time understanding how these uh, items relate to systemic risk, which is the intended use of, uh, of this form at all, first of all. Second of all, why these need to be reported on a one business day period. These are fairly mundane items that in the private equity world are just part of life. A secondary an advisor-led secondary transaction hardly has the hallmarks of causing 
spillover effects to other sectors of the financial industry, introducing uh, risk, much less having risk at all. It's just a, an ordinary course thing to happen. For hedge funds and open-end funds, events are, are more uh, familiar to a review for risk. I'm, I'm not sure that they necessarily got the mark right, but there are things like extraordinary investment losses, meaning 20% of a fund's NAV over a 10 business day period, uh, margin and, and default events. Those can be potentially risk events, material changes in a relationship with a prime broker or large withdrawals or redemptions. And they, they define that as 50% or more of a fund's NAV. Those feel at least within the zone of systemic risk as compared to the ones for private equity, which are, are just curious. In the proposed release, SEC did say that the staff would be using this information for its own examination purposes, which might be more an indicator of why these items are in the form PF reporting at all. But it doesn't explain why they uh, require a one business day reporting cycle, which might not be able to happen. For example, if the person with access to, you know, the password to the uh, reporting system is is out, you know, on leave or is sick someday. The proposal also has uh, what probably will will catch a lot of attention in the comment letters, reporting uh, of portfolio company financing events, which would be, to my my knowledge, the first time funds would be reporting on portfolio company events uh, on Form PF. And I think that that, as I said before, will catch a lot of attention with commenters. That's a great overview, David. Thank you. On some of your points about the questions raised of certain items really relate to systemic risk. I don't know, Mike, do you have any further thoughts um, on that? I do. I mean, I don't think it's about systemic risk. I think it's about hypergranular oversight of an industry that the commission has long wanted to get into. I mean, I think that's what it boils down to. And you don't have to trust me. I mean, I think I spoke earlier about how politicized the SEC has become in recent years, which in many ways is a shame. Nothing significant happens without a dissent. And in this case, when you read Commissioner Pierce's dissent, she effectively accuses her fellow commissioners of using Form PF to simply pull in data to feed, as David said, the exam program and the enforcement program. And her quote, which is, a regulator's desire for data is insatiable, but more data is not always better, I think sums it up very nicely. And she also, of course, dissented to the private fund proposed rules, calling those a, a sea change. A lot of clients, right, who have, you know, their smaller private equity shops, they invest geographically, uh, you know, in smaller type of uh, mid-sized businesses, right? I have a hard time believing how producing documentation on how a uh, local cement mixer company or in Georgia creates systematic risk to the financial industry, right? And so I, I agree, Mike, with you and, and David as well, is that it just seems um, a little bit like uh, overreach here in terms of wanting to, to gather more information and using it as an excuse to gather information on really what advisors are doing from an investment perspective. You make it a point, Robert. Take the proposals, the Form PF and the private fund proposals together. There are some very controversial aspects to the proposals, but putting that aside, there are a lot of burdensome ones. And burdensome, like in an individual sense, like you would say, well, we want to add a, a, a reporting line about portfolio company financing. How difficult is that? But when you add it all up, it's a pretty substantial new set of burdens 
that especially for smaller private fund advisors just makes it very, very difficult to come into the space. And we've seen this happen in the retail space where the SEC adds and adds and adds. And the effect is to create barriers to coming into the industry and the potential for less competition and and kind of in, uh, like in, in leaving in place the incumbents without new entrants and especially smaller advisors coming in. And, you know, that, that's troublesome. Uh, the, the SEC should be thinking about uh, the burdens on small advisors. They, they do make some accommodations in some places for small advisors. But when you look at this set of proposals together, it's pretty difficult for a small, especially smaller advisor to kind of manage it all. Before turning to the next topic, anyone want to try to read the tea leaves of how this plays out or any final thoughts on proposed uh, amendments to Form PF? I would just say, Megan, if politics is driving this, then politics will be the solution to any perceived excess. So the SEC may get these regs through. They may. But if the industry or whoever wins Congress perceives too much, then you may say a push and it goes back the other way. So I'd hate to see all of this work and rulemaking and change in the industry be reversed, but that may be where we end up in two years. I agree with Mike and, and David. I think you hit it hit the nail on the head, right? I have clients that are pretty concerned about how arduous some of this, some of these amendments are. And just what David said, just the resources, time, energy, pulling all this together, right, in the time frame that the SEC has proposed is going to be a difficult task. You know, a lot of these clients have, you know, CCOs wear dual hats, CFOs, right? I mean, they're already overloaded. And so this is just, again, adding layers upon layers of activity and data and information um, and reporting obligations that are just going to take time away from focusing on, obviously, their clients, their investments, and just, you know, sort of the day-to-day operational aspects of, of what they're already trying to accomplish. Let's turn to the risk alert. The Division of Examinations recently issued on January 27th. There is a lot in here that I think we won't go through today, but we can touch on it because it's timely and it came at around the same time as these proposals. So it's worth mentioning. Rob, maybe you could just give us just very macro context of this risk alert. Yeah, happy to. So as most of our listeners are aware, the SEC issues these risk alerts from time to time to provide the industry with some direction and insight into those particular risks or conflict areas that they're scrutinizing. So the June 2020, to take a step back, risk alert provided an overview of a number of compliance issues, um, com- conflicts of interest, fees and expenses, material non-public information that were observed by the exam team during examinations specifically uh, related to uh, private funds. Um, This new risk alert leverages the June 2020 risk alert and highlights um, a number of additional risk and conflict areas. So for example, um, this risk alert highlighted private funds failures to act uh, consistently with disclosures, uh, the use of misleading disclosures regarding performance and marketing, due diligence failures relating to investments uh, or service providers, vendors, uh, as well as the use of potentially misleading hedge clauses. So I think what we're seeing here is sort of, the again, the SEC building upon prior risk alerts, building upon their scrutiny and focus of the private funds industry and highlighting areas where they are going to continue to scrutinize through their exam process as well as, you know, through potential enforcement as we move into 2022. That's right. And on a couple topics in the risk alert, there's actually a couple enforcement actions that align with the topics. 
and potentially there could be more in the coming months. It certainly is an indication of what the SEC is focusing on. The SEC and the staff are focusing on these topics, and that's how I interpret their risk alert to be the SEC saying, hey, the, these are the topics that you'll, you'll see on exams and be ready. It also probably, given the timing of its release, was intended to be uh, lay the groundwork for some of the rule proposals that we've been discussing. David, you said that in a completely non-cynical way. <laughs> I have a good poker face, Mike. <laughs> Look, I, I think I agree with you both. I found most striking, not the topics. We all know what the, those are. We're used to seeing them. It's the tone. The tone was, I think, a little more pessimistic and sweeping in terms of how pervasive it makes these issues sound. And to David's point, I, I do think you can read all of the things we're talking today about as of the same piece. I really do. One of the things that I continue to impress upon clients when we conduct our annual reviews for clients and do our mock SEC examinations, I think these risk alerts definitely highlight and emphasize that the SEC is looking at all these different types of risks and conflicts, right? And, and these, again, are great ways for our clients really to benchmark their compliance uh, and regulatory programs against what the SEC is focused on. And, and again, as I said earlier, identifying those pain points, those weaknesses, or, or identifying those strengths, right? Knowing and feeling good about, hey, we have appropriate policies and procedures in place. We have controls in place that are really strong here. We feel good about that. We can spend less time here and more time maybe on you know another particular weakness that maybe we don't feel as strong about. So again, you know, I think these risk alerts highlight important issues to clients and I, I continue to impress upon clients to use these and I plead with them to use them as opportunities to benchmark their their programs and take them seriously because um, we ask the questions to prepare our clients and certainly at some point when the SEC comes around, you know, more than likely they're going to be asking very similar questions. Rob, thanks so much for that helpful overview. And it's definitely a useful tool for advisors to take a look at and see what applies to their operations and benchmark, as you said. And with that, I want to thank our listeners very much for listening today. And I'll note that all materials referenced on this episode, for instance, the proposed rules, the fact sheets, the risk alert, and related materials can be found on Simpson's website on the Fund's Regulatory and Investigations page, as well as on the website for this podcast, regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. If anyone has any questions about today's topics or has a topic you'd like covered on a future episode, please don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Regulatory Roundtable. To hear about future episodes, be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast app. To learn more about today's discussion or to reach out with questions or topics you would like to hear about on a future podcast, please contact us at regulatoryroundtable at stblaw.com or visit our website at regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Simpson Thatcher and ACA Group for general informational purposes only. Listeners should not consider the information available via this podcast to be an invitation for an attorney-client relationship, should not rely on the information provided during the podcast as legal advice for any purpose, and should always seek the legal advice of competent counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. 
Listeners should not act or refrain from acting based on any information made available via this podcast. And Simpson Thatcher and ACA expressly disclaim all liability in respect of actions taken or not taken based on any contents of this podcast. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that Simpson Thatcher and ACA make no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of Simpson Thatcher or ACA Group.